Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Mark Goulet, and I'm a professor of mathematics and associate dean in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, your host for this program. Today, I'll be interviewing Karen Parshall, Commonwealth Professor of History and Mathematics at the University of Virginia, about her new book, The New Era in Mathematics, 1920 to 1950, published in 2022 by Princeton University Press. Dr. Parshall is also the author of James Joseph Sylvester, Jewish Mathematician in a Victorian World, and the co-author of Taming the Unknown, A History of Algebra from Antiquity to the Early 20th Century. She was a 1996-97 Guggenheim Fellow and a 2012 inaugural fellow of the American Mathematical Society. She's a 2018 winner of the Albert Leon Whiteman Memorial Prize of the American Mathematical Society for her outstanding work in the history of mathematics and for her work on the evolution of mathematics in the United States and on the history of algebra. In 2020, she was elected a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, In the new era in mathematics, Karen explores the institutional, financial, social, and political forces that shape and support the American mathematics community in the first half of the 20th century. She draws from extensive archival and primary source research, uncovering the key players in American mathematics who work together to affect change. Dr. Parshall highlights the educational, professional, philanthropic, and government entities that bolstered progress and uncovers the strategies implemented by American mathematicians in their quest for the advancement of knowledge. Through an examination of how the American mathematical community asserted itself on the international state, the new era in mathematics shows the way one nation became the focal point or the field. Karen Parshall, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mark, for having me. I really appreciate you uh, your interest in the book. <laughs> yes, certainly. Um, so we'd like to start with uh, you introducing yourselves a little bit to the listener, telling us a little bit about yourself, and in particular, how you became interested in mathematics and in the history of mathematics. Okay, so how did I get interested in mathematics? Um, I can't really say for sure, but it seems like I've always been interested in it, especially after I got into high school. I had some really wonderful teachers there. But then I went off to college at the University of Virginia, having decided to major in mathematics and French. My paternal grandmother was French, so that's where that interest came from. But serendipitously, It was in a graduate French class that was being given by the visiting professor from France that year that as a third year student, I discovered the history of science as a field. 
the course I was in was ostensibly on 18th century French literature, but in fact, it was on 18th century French philosophers of nature. That's an old fashioned term for scientists. Jacques Roger was the professor and he was, unbeknownst to me, but I soon came to find out, the leading French historian of biology of the day. And he took me under his wing. So at the end of that semester, he took me aside and he said he really thought I should consider a career in the history of science, especially given my language training and, and my work in mathematics. I mean, I didn't even know it was a field. So <laughs> this was, as the French would say, a moment privilégié for me. I, it, everything kind of came together and it was like, whoa, this is it. So I did my graduate work at the University of Chicago in the history of science, but Given Chicago's curricular open-mindedness, the courses I took for my PhD were in history, history of science, and mathematics. And I had two different advisors, Alan Debus in the history of science, and Yitzhar Steen in mathematics. So I've kind of had a foot in each field ever since. Thank you. Um, so the um, this particular book um, it seems to be um, uh, a work that you've been interested in pursuing for a while. It, I can tell uh, a lot has gone, a lot went into it. A lot of significant research went into it. Um, uh, maybe you could say a little bit about um, what, what brought you to that? What, what brought you particular to, to this book? What, why this book for you at this time? Well, um, the very first book I did was with David Rowe, and it came out in 1994, and it was called The Emergence of the American Mathematical Research Community, 1876 to 1900. So in that book, he and I um, looked at the Americans who were interested in mathematics particularly in that last quarter century. And it's there that we identified um, the beginnings of an actual community where you no longer had isolated mathematicians kind of teaching here and there, but a, a kind of critical mass happened or had happened by, the, by, by around 1900. So we looked at the different mathematicians involved. We looked at the work they were doing. We were, looked at... Um, the educational um, situation in the United States at the time that helped mathematicians develop research agendas. We looked at the influence of um, Europe on American mathematicians because at that point in time, we really didn't have the programs here to train people at that level. And so a lot of Americans who wanted to do mathematics went to, to Europe and particularly to Germany. So um, so I've, so it's been a long time since I've been interested in American mathematics, but then, as you mentioned, I, I did a bunch of work on Sylvester. Uh, he actually, even though he was a British mathematician, uh, he was the reason why that book's dates go from 1876 to 1900. He came as the first uh, professor of mathematics at Johns Hopkins, which was the first real graduate program in mathematics in the United States. So... So, yeah, I've had an interest in American mathematics for a long time. I kind of got sidetracked by working on Sylvester, which took me to England and so on. And then the other book you mentioned um, on the history of algebra. And so I just I decided to come back to this topic. Thanks. Thanks. So at the time, so at the turn of the 20th century, what impression uh, do you discover the rest of the world has about the state of mathematical research um, in in the United States and um, maybe in Europe? Okay, so uh, I think I've got to start by uh, figuring out what we mean by the rest of the world at the turn of the 20th century. So the way Americans conceived of it, mathematics at the time was European. You know, hands down. So there, so the rest of the world, from their point of view, would really mean only Europe, not China or Japan, not the Middle East, not South America, not Africa, not India or Australia or New Zealand, 
except perhaps those last three, insofar as mathematicians there participated in the British mathematical scene. So if we make the question, what impression did European mathematicians have about the state of American mathematics at the turn of the 20th century, then the most generous answer would be that they thought of American mathematicians as their mathematical apprentices. And that assessment would be fair, especially given the fact that um, American would-be mathematicians had gone to Europe for their more advanced training. And given, as I said just a minute ago, uh, strong graduate programs were largely lacking in the U.S. until after 1900, with the exceptions of Harvard and then Chicago beginning in the 1890s, and then Harvard also beginning in the 1890s. So these Americans around the turn of the century and just before, and just after actually, uh, their number one mathematical destination was Germany, but France and England also attracted some of them. And uh, as I was saying, this is one of the things that David and I did in, in our book, um, The Emergence of the American Mathematical Research Community. So that would be the most generous assessment uh, that American mathematicians were, the, the, that the Europeans thought American mathematicians were their mathematical apprentices. But for most German mathematical leaders in particular, and you know, mathematicians in general, the U.S. just really wasn't on their radar screen before World War One, so I think that's right. That's and, and the United <laughs> and the United States mathematicians acknowledged maybe that. Um... So they were increasing. The Americans were increasingly. So when I say increasingly, I mean nineteen hundred and on you know, they were proud of where they were in 1900. And they they really thought that they should, in some sense, be getting more credit for what they were doing than they seemed to be. Um, so they, they kept working on it. Um, so I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but... Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I think it does. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's um, you know... Uh, one thing um, to be perceived a certain way, but then you're living in this, you know, country and working in mathematics, and there certainly are um, accomplished mathematicians here uh, working. Um, but in volume, I think you know, for those of us who are mathematicians, could look at the list of people with positions in your at other parts of the world in the United States, and maybe recognize more at the time from Europe um, in terms of names associated with theorems that we might be familiar with or areas of uh, work. And so um, one name that comes up as a prominent uh, name uh, throughout the book um, in this era, uh, perhaps a little bit before, but certainly in this era that you write, is Oswald Fablin, a prominent, preeminent mathematician at Princeton through the early part of the 20th century. Um, it there's a lot to say about him. He's, he's through, he's, he shows up in various parts of, of your book um, as strong advocate for improving the conditions for supporting research in mathematics in the United States. So um, the book is, 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 is got certain sections. Uh, one early section, it, as you speak about the era, it begins maybe rightfully so, in the 19, 1920s, perhaps say something about him and his important contributions to United States mathematics during the 1920s. Okay. So let me start by saying just a little bit more about Veblen. Um, he earned his PhD at Chicago in 1903 under E.H. Moore uh, for a dissertation on the foundations of geometry. But as you say, he had taken a print of position at Princeton by 1905. And that's where he made a name for himself as a mathematician within the broader American mathematical community um, for his research that was first in the foundations of geometry, that was his um, dissertation work, and then in the foundations of projective geometry. And then by the 19-teens in what we today call algebraic topology. So, he, by 1920, 
he was a he was a name in the American mathematical community. And for the two calendar years between 1923 and 1924, he served as president of the American Math Society. So he was 43 years old and his fellow mathematicians had recognized him as one of their most distinguished on the basis of his of his research. So Veblen's AMS presidency gave him a platform from which he could try at least to build the American mathematical research community further. That goes without saying, maybe, <laughs> that not every AMS president makes full use of that platform, but Veblen most definitely did. Like his immediate predecessor as AMS president, that was um, one of his former fellow Chicago graduate students, Gilbert Bliss, who was then on the faculty at Chicago. Uh, Veblen and Bliss both recognized the post-World War, post War I 1920s as a really critical juncture for American science in general and for American mathematics in particular. Veblen saw especially the physicists and the chemists beginning to enjoy federal support for their research as a result of their wartime efforts. And he recognized that mathematics needed to get on that bandwagon, but they hadn't been part of that discussion. The American mathematicians were, they participated in the World War I effort, but they were not that visible. It was the chemists and the physicists who were the visible ones. So, so what were his contributions in this context then? There are a lot of them. Uh, the first thing he did as AMS president was to oversee the completion of Bliss's initiative to corporatize the AMS so that it could more effectively raise money for mathematics. He recognized that we, mathematics needed resources. Then he oversaw a direct fund, fundraising campaign that resulted in the establishment of a $100,000 endowment for the AMS. That's about $1.6 million in today's dollars. And this money that was raised as part of this, for this, through this initiative came from AMS members, but it also came from um, selected industries that used or benefited from mathematics, like publishing houses, insurance companies, electricity concerns, and so on. Another thing that Veblen did in the context of this money raising was to significantly increase the membership of the AMS. More members meant more money. And so all of this was feeding into this fundraising for mathematics. Um, also on his watch as AMS president, the Gibbs lectures were established um, in an effort to convey the utility of mathematics to a broader audience. And so hopefully to improve public appreciation of the mathematical endeavor. He recognized that mathematics had a PR problem and if, if it was going to be competitive with the chemists and the physicists, it was gonna to need to do better about explaining to people how important its work was and why they should support it. Um, he also made direct approaches to new funding sources. So the early years of the 20th century, that's the rise of um, private philanthropy, um, started in the 19th century, of course, but a lot was going on in the early years of the 20th. Um, some of these new funding sources that Veblen tapped, and I mean, he went to directly, he made the pitch for mathematics, the National Academy of Sciences and its National Research Council, the Rockefeller Foundation and its General Education Board, as well as its International Education Board, the Carnegie Corporation, basically any foundation, any uh, philanthropy that he thought he could get some traction with, he went to. Um, and he was very successful. He, he was a very compelling um, proponent for mathematics. So he secured lots of grant money for mathematical research, especially at the postdoctoral level. So um, he and, you know, other mathematicians sort of in his sphere of influence recognized that part of the problem with trying to break into a mathematical research area was time to actually do the research. I mean, you get your PhD, fine, but then what? You, you take a job with a heavy teaching load, um, 
people needed some time to be able to let those mathematical ideas percolate a bit. And so postdocs, they viewed as just essential. So he, he got money for postdocs in mathematics, but also money for to support mathematical publications and specifically the ones that were published by the AMS. So that at that time, that's the bulletin of the AMS and the transactions of the AMS and the AMS's colloquium publications. So I hope that makes clear <laughs> that Veblen was a real mover and shaker at a time when American mathematics just needed that kind of energy, but he wasn't alone in that. Um, his successor as AMS president was Harvard's George Burkhoff, and he was another key mover and shaker also in the 1920s who shared the same vision for American mathematics um, that Veblen had. Yeah, no, that made it very clear, uh, Karen. I mean, really, um, you know, um, I mean, given that list that you just... It's a long list. It's a a remarkable set of accomplishments um, from someone who was, um, you know, uh, uh, really um, a practicing mathematician at Princeton. I was in the Princeton math department, but I mean, as a role, um, especially as president of the AMS, really, um, I don't, I don't know. Um, Does, did that at the time come with any release from duties at your, yeah, yeah, yeah. So (laughs) remarkable energy. (laughs) Right, right. Um, So, um, well, speaking then to segue into that, because you mentioned his, his role as the president, uh, a very um, uh, um, fruitful role. Um, what role in general did the American Mathematical Society play uh, during the 1920s in advancing, as you said, that research level mathematics in the United States? Yeah, so, um, so the AMS served as the focal point for America's research mathematicians. But the Mathematical Association of America played that role for the teaching side of the mission. Um, And the memberships of those two organizations then, like now, overlap significantly. So, you know, a lot of what a lot of what I'm about to say will be specific to the AMS, but we can't forget that the MAA was also doing a lot of these same things just towards the teaching mission, which meant that they weren't ignoring the research mission either. But anyway, so we've really got two uh, societies working towards some of these things in complementary but somewhat different ways. So, so how did the AMS specifically advance research level mathematics? Well, okay, this is another long list. It organized both national and regional meetings for the direct communication of mathematical research and for the interchange of mathematical ideas. So lines of communication. It published its two journals, like I just said, the bulletin had been founded in 1891 and the transactions had been founded in 1899. So two publications, again, lines of communication. Um, It sponsored the Gibbs lectures that was Veblen's initiative, but after he was no longer president, it persisted. It was, it's, it still is an AMS um, initiative annually. There's a Gibbs lecture. Uh, and the goal content was and continues to be building of bridges to other disciplines and raising awareness of mathematics utility. Um, the AMS also began publishing mathematical research books specifically its colloquium lecture series. But at first, those were published as one-offs with press and university subventions. But after 1914, the AMS started paying for them itself. So now it's in the business of publishing mathematical monographs. And that was expanded in 1925. That was on Burkhoff's watch as AMS president to include book manuscripts that weren't a product of a series of colloquium lectures. So it's it's the 1920s that the AMS is not only publishing research journals, but they also start publishing research level books. Um, it established prizes and other honors to highlight and publicize mathematical achievements. So the colloquium lectures, that was an honor. 
um, the Boucher Prize was started in 1918. And initially it was for the best paper published in the transactions over the previous four years. But after 1933, its purview was enlarged to cover all North American journals, but its subject was limited to analysis. And it was first awarded to Burkhoff for his work on dynamical systems. Then the Cole Prize in Algebra was started in 1922. It first went to Chicago's Leonard Dixon in 1928 for his work on algebras and their arithmetics. Um, and then the Cole Prize in Number Theory was founded in 1929, and that first went to the University of Texas's uh, Harry Vandiver for his work on Fermat's Last Theorem. So the AMS really played quite a major role in advancing American mathematical research through all of these different ways. Thank you. Yeah, that, I don't think I think that would that's very helpful. Um, you know, I think to this day, um, many of us practicing mathematicians sort of recognize the important role that the AMS and the MAA both play together. They're very um, collegial relationships. Mm -hmm. Many of us have right maybe maintain joint memberships in those mm -hmm. organizations for years, uh, partly to recognize both the role that research, important role that research plays and the important role that teaching plays. And it sounds like at this time, especially, um, teaching was understood at least to be to, to, to be important and to be done, to be being done. But what was needing needed especially was to recognize the important work of mathematical research among American mathematicians and mathematical institutions. Um, right, so because the colleges, uh, the colleges maybe in particular, but even some of the universities, um, they viewed themselves more as uh, providing teaching than in fostering research. But that that is something that really changes. Okay, so Chicago starts off with a focus on research. Johns Hopkins starts off with a focus on research, but others, it takes them a while, other institutions to do that. So teaching, teaching was all, it was always understood that these faculty members were going to be teachers, but increasingly they were also supposed to be researchers. So you mentioned earlier um, Oswald Veblen in particular's success in um, accessing and um, making inroads with philanthropic organizations uh, in support of, of some of this work. So um, in particular, uh, your book brings up during the 1920s, uh, a particular um, well-known philanthropic organization, the Rockefeller Foundation, funded an international education board. Um and uh, you've also now made mention of uh, Veblen's successor as AMS president, uh, George Burkhoff. Can you say something about how George Burkhoff helped uh, explain maybe to the Rockefeller Foundation or funders did uh, things sort of better understand uh, the state of mathematics um, uh, during 1926? Um and what role he played there? What was Burkhoff's assessment of the state of U.S. mathematics in relation to the leading European centers of the time, like Paris and Göttingen, um, and comparing U.S. mathematicians to European mathematicians? Sure. So, uh, so as I said, and as you just said, Burkhoff was AMS president. These were always two calendar years then. So he was president 1925 and 1926. Um, so given the fact that he was sort of at the head of the AMS and he was a distinguished mathematician and he was a Harvard professor, uh, he was more than a reasonable choice of advisor to the Rockefeller Foundation and its International Education Board. Um, the IEB had been started by the Rockefeller Foundation in 1923 to promote interestingly, scholarship internationally. So you have this American philanthropy, but its its vision is beyond America's borders. Uh, it wants to promote scholarship internationally. So it asks that, uh, Burkhoff if he will go on a fact-finding mission for it in 1926. 
And he says, yes. At that point, he's 44 years old. And unlike so many American mathematicians in his cohort, he had never been abroad before. So he's 44 and he's never been outside of the, the US. So this was an eye-opening opportunity for him in many respects. So first of all, it's clear from the report that he wrote up for the IEB and from his correspondence that his European experience actually helped him gain perspective on the American scene just as much as it did on the European scene. While American mathematics was increasingly robust, it, it wasn't the equal, as Birkhoff had thought, of what Birkhoff described as the whole of Europe. So one of the sentences uh, in, in the report is, I had thought, well, I'm paraphrasing, but I had thought that the US was equal to the whole of Europe mathematically. But being there, he realized, no, well, actually it wasn't. And that was a really sobering revelation for him. So he was in Europe for a year. And although he was home-based in Paris, he traveled all over. He went to Belgium, Denmark, all around France, Germany, the UK, Italy, the Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland. He went basically everywhere. Um, and he met and interacted with all of the big names and with just mathematicians in general, and then characterized his impressions for the e IEB in his report. So at the top of the heap, he ranked David Hilbert as the greatest mathematician in Europe, with Jacques Admar as a close second. But he thought that it was G.H. Hardy who had done the best mathematical work since the end of World War I. So those are kind of the three at the top for him in his assessment. And then in the report, he goes kind of country by country, singling out uh, the mathematicians he views at the best. So those three I just mentioned, they're also on this list, but I won't mention them again. But in Italy, Vito Volterra and Tullio Levicivita. In France, Émile Picard, Henri Lebeg, Émile Borel. In Germany, Edmund Landau, Erich Hecke, and Constantine Karateadori. In the Netherlands, L.E.J. Berger. In Denmark, Harold Bohr and in Switzerland, Hermann Weil, and finally in uh, England, Edmund Whitaker, among others. But those are sort of, that's kind of the top echelon that he distinguished in this report. Um, and as he put it in that report, he said he had, and this is a quote, hitherto underestimated the power of Europe in the scientific direction. <laughs> so he really did have his eyes open. So he was kind of cocky. You know, we met, in America, we're doing it the best. And then he goes over there and he meets all these people and he interacts with them and he goes, whoa, these guys are good. So one thing seemed clear to Burkhoff, Veblen and others was that it was important both for American mathematicians to go abroad and thereby to bring the strength of their mathematics directly before the Europeans. But it was also important for the Europeans to come to the US to experience the American mathematical scene directly. So it was during his AMS presidency that Burkhoff masterminded the AMS's visiting lecturer program, which designated one distinguished foreign visitor a year to give a series of lectures all over the country. So the very first one was Karateadori, who came in uh, the 1927-1928 academic year. He was followed by Hermann Weil for 1929 to 1930, and the list goes on, and all the people in the list are of that caliber. But another interesting exchange was that between Hardy, who took Veblen's place at Princeton, and Veblen, who took Hardy's place at Oxford during the 1928-29 academic year. Hardy came away from his experience with the conclusion that mathematical America had bested mathematical Great Britain. And if the Americans had known about that, uh, they would have been very happy. But um, anyways, it, it, it's remarkable that someone like Hardy should have made that assessment. So I'd say that the exchanges didn't so much raise the level of mathematics in the US as they began the process of opening European eyes to the quality of what American mathematicians were producing and to the depth of their community. 
Thank you. Thank you. That's fascinating. Uh, fascinating. A bit of history. Um, those exchanges and uh, uh, the uh, individuals uh, that Burkhoff came got to meet. Uh, for those of us in mathematics, listen to a list of names you rattled off. Yeah, right. names <laughs> associated with important theorems, important works, right. important areas of the of, 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 of mathematics at the time. Um, and and today yet today, so um, so here we are in the uh, 1920s and moving on in time. And uh, we all know uh, certainly that um, events are not only mathematical events. So there's a big event that occurs: um, <laughs> great the Great Depression. The Great Depression, you know, hits. And um, so maybe you could say a little bit about. What did you learn about the impact that um, that had on these kind of efforts and investments in improving the state of mathematics research? Um, how did uh, the American mathematical landscape manage okay. during that time? Yeah, so the as we just were saying, the 1920s had been a, a real period of development for American mathematics. So just like with the country at large, when the de- hit, it raised a whole lot of concerns. Among them, would the universities and to a lesser extent the colleges continue to value and support research in addition to teaching? So I said a minute ago, teaching was really the main thing. They had been and were continuing, you know, increasingly supporting research, but would that continue? Wasn't clear. Would mathematics continue to get philanthropic support? It wasn't clear. Um, So the in short, I mean, would they be able to sustain this momentum that they had built up in the 1920s? None of this was clear. So almost paradoxically, they were able to sustain the momentum, even though their salaries were cut, some as much as 10 to 15 percent. Some talented people likely didn't even go into mathematics because they couldn't afford the higher education. Some people who were in mathematics lost their jobs and never went back to it. Uh, and there were just generally fewer jobs to be had. So, you know, it wasn't a good time. But the AMS, as we, as I mentioned, it had gotten its financial house in order in the 1920s. And by and large, it managed to sustain its publication efforts by convincing universities that they, since they based their hiring and promotion increasingly on publication, needed to contribute to the publication endeavor via page charges, institutional memberships, and whatnot. And amazingly, even in the depths of the depression, the colleges and universities bought that argument and ponied up the money. It's, like I say, it's a paradox, but that's what happened. Also paradoxically, the 1930s saw the development and strengthening of a number of departments across the nation. So if the big three at the time were, Chicago, Harvard, and Princeton, uh, others began making their moves in the 1930s. Uh, In the East, it was Penn and MIT. In the Midwest, it was Ohio, Wisconsin, and Illinois. In the West, it was Stanford and Caltech. And in the South, it was Rice and Texas. But there was also targeted building of uh, mathematics at other schools, kind of almost from nothing, uh, at Virginia in the South under topologist Gordon Wyburn. A research department was was assembled at Berkeley in the West under analyst uh, Griffith Evans. And then the Institute for Advanced Study, which opened thanks to philanthropic dollars in 1933. There was also the founding of new new journals that were independent of the AMS and the MAA. The Duke Mathematical Journal was started in 1935, funded by Duke. And the Journal of Symbolic Logic was founded in 1936, and that was found that was based on subscriptions of the people who subscribed to the journal. So the bottom line is that the American mathematical community had been so strengthened by the end of the 1920s that it had the wherewithal to withstand something even as severe as the Great Depression. So it's remarkable. Yeah, that is a remarkable uh, um, circumstance. I mean, given the the financial um, situation, um, 
So in shortly, uh, short term, in somewhat parallel times, um, of course, the other major world event is uh, World War II, Hitler's, Hitler's rise. Um, uh, I, um, human rights um, violations occurring um, across uh, a, a lot of Europe. Um, so accepting European emigres became a real thing you know, post April 1933's Nazi purge, 1938 Austrian Anschluss, the Munich Agreement, the Kristallnacht program. So things were over time, a relatively short, horrible period of time um, occurring quickly. How did um, this American mathematical community react? you know, understandably, um, there was, I'm sure, impetus to to, to help uh, among some, but they're also not immune to xenophobia and humanitarian, uh, both influences xenophobic as well as humanitarian. Right. Um, so although everybody in the community didn't agree, it's fair to say, I think, that a majority worked to help place displaced European mathematicians, most of whom were Jews, in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, And they had help doing this. There were independent organizations that were founded for this purpose. The Emergency Committee in Aid of Displaced German, later it changed its name to Foreign Scholars, and that was based in New York City. The Rockefeller Foundation, which was also in New York, and the American Friends Service Committee in Philadelphia, among others. But again, Veblen was a key player in these efforts. He actually served on the emergency committee with, you know, he was a mathematician. He was the only mathematician on the emergency committee. These other people were in all sorts of other fields and were just, you know, intellectuals. Um, But anyway, Veblen is there in his capacity as an intellectual and a mathematician. Um, So together with others like Roland Richardson, who was secretary of the AMS, and John von Neumann, who had come to the US before Hitler's rise, Veblen acted as a clearinghouse for placing displaced mathematicians. But it's important to keep in mind that this too was happening during the depression. And many wondered why were foreign mathematicians getting jobs when American mathematicians were hard pressed? Why should foreign mathematicians, because of their often imperfect command of English, get more research-oriented, less teaching-oriented jobs? As you say, the American mathematical community, just like the country as a whole, was not immune to xenophobia or anti-Semitism. Still, some 120 emigres had found academic or other homes in the U.S. by around 1940. Their areas were those well well represented already in the U.S., algebra, analysis, topology, geometry, but also a few areas that were less well represented, like probability, statistics, and applied mathematics. So the bottom line here is that American mathematical networks were in place from coast to coast, thanks to the work of the AMS and the MAA before the early 1930s when Hitler came to power. The American mathematical community already had a critical mass of active and talented researchers. It had resources in the colleges and universities, journals, philanthropic support that enabled it to absorb these emigres, and the emigres were able to participate in a community essentially as vibrant as those they had had to leave behind. So um, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's very telling uh, that, well, let me say it this way. The conventional wisdom always had it that American, the American mathematical community wasn't anything until the Europeans came as a result of the Nazi purge. And I mean, I hope what we've already talked about suggest that that's just not right, <laughs> that, 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 that every, it was in place, it was strong. Um, and I mean, while they had a very difficult social transition to come, coming to the United States, these European mathematicians did not have that difficult an intellectual transition because the community here was 
was good. I mean, the mathematics was strong. Um, and they and, and they recognize that. Yeah, thank you. Um, one thing I found fascinating in this portion of the book, uh, learning about about a, a lot of these uh, of these efforts um, and Fablin's efforts and others, was that um, you know, of course, as the war was progressing uh, and the, the events that I re- recently referred to, and you just spoke to a bit, um, uh, progressed. The pressures on immigration continued to to be there, and. Um, at one point, uh, there was even a memo I found fascinating created that actually graded potential mathematicians and physicists on aspects of uh, performance evaluation, some sort of scholarship, personality, which is sort of fascinating, teaching uh, ability, adaptability, academic position, and even a column for some remarks uh, that might um, raise serious concerns to those of us sitting on 21st century search committees. Um, But would you care to make any comments about that? Sure. This memo, uh, when I found that memo, I just went, well, I just hit the mother load here as a a document. (laughs) So it's, it's called Mathematicians and Physicists Whose Records Have Been Sent to the American Friends Service Committee. Um. And that committee was like the emergency committee. Uh, it worked to displace these displaced to place these displaced scholars. So originally, all of those organizations that were trying to place these people um, tried to be strategic. So they wanted to place emigres in such a way as to build and strengthen extant programs, not just in mathematics, but in all areas. So because all of the emigres were not mathematicians, obviously. Um, And they also tried to place only the best since jobs were so scarce and they were mindful of the risks associated with xenophobia and anti-Semitism. So one of the refrains that you see in the correspondence of Veblen and others in the 1930s was saturation point. They, they're always saying, we're about to read the, reach the saturation point. Where the saturation point is, is on top of us now. Um, so that's why they tried to come up with some way to try to compare these cases. They just felt like they, they couldn't take everybody. So let's try to take the best. So like you said, this, this document um, has this grading scale from A to C minus, um, evaluating the categories you mentioned, scholarship, personality, adaptability. Age was also a serious consideration because, uh, and like you mentioned, there's this column of comments like impossible as a teacher of undergraduates or too old to be placed. Um, so, I mean, in general, because these emigres would have had to forfeit their European positions uh, and their European, pen, I mean, their positions, yes, but their pensions in particular, taking on an older emigre would have meant the additional commitment of some kind of pension and, and institutions during the Depression just couldn't afford it. They couldn't afford pensions for their own people. So, like you said, uh, some of those evaluation criteria and some of those comments would definitely raise serious concerns on 21st century search committees. Um, absolutely true. But these events were taking place in the 1930s, a different time with different social and other mores. And as historians, I would argue that we need to understand these events on their own terms in their own time and place and not judge them through our modern lenses. Um, so, okay, I'll get off my soapbox on that one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, that's fascinating. Um, the, um, so, you know, the thirties, uh, concluding, um, by the early forties, uh, the U S uh, involvement in the war is, um, a, it's significant in some in uh, mathematicians are are poised through the structures that have been sort of been developed uh, to maybe make a difference in contributing to this war effort, um, uh, both due to the increased talents of U.S. mathematicians and aided by immigrant influxes and improved infrastructures. So 
Uh, can you say something about how U.S. mathematicians contributed uh, to the war effort? Yeah, it, it's such a big question. <laughs> so, and the answer has a lot of moving parts. So, um, so let me figure out where to start. L- let me start with the AMS and the MAA, since we've already talked about them a little bit. Um, knowing how important it was going to be for American mathematicians to make fundamental contributions to this new war effort, the AMS and the MAA formed a joint, what they called War Preparedness Committee in 1939. And it was chaired by Marston Morse, who was then at the Institute for Advanced Study. So it had a number of subcommittees. It had a subcommittee on research, one on preparedness for research, one on education for service, and one beginning in 1941 on supply and demand for mathematicians. So just the topics of those subcommittees give a clear outline of where American mathematicians foresaw their impact on this war effort. Um, The AMS thought that it would and should serve as the interface with the armed services relative to their mathematical needs. But that's not how it played out. I mean, they thought that the armed services should come to the AMS and say, we have this problem, help us solve it. Or have these problems, help us solve them. But as I say, that's not how it played out. Uh, It was in fact the applied mathematics panel under Warren Weaver, who was an applied mathematician originally at Wisconsin, but who had become a higher up in the Rockefeller Foundation that largely coordinated the mathematical effort during World War II. Um, It was a government entity under the Office of Scientific Research and Development, and I'll come back to it in just a minute. So what was mathematical war work? Well, first and foremost, it was the completely unsexy work of providing basic mathematical training to military recruits in colleges and university, college and university classrooms across the country. In all, some 250,000 men were trained in basic trigonometry, algebra, analytic geometry, and calculus with some in differential equations, navigation, and other topics. So America's mathematicians were continuing to teach, and they were teaching these military recruits, most of whom had almost no mathematics to start with. So they were t- it was very basic teaching for the most part. Um, the Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland coordinated work in ballistics uh, calculations and testing. But this was also the context in which ENIAC, the first electronic computer, was developed by Herman Goldstein and others. Then there's the Applied Mathematics Panel. It formed applied mathematics groups that were housed at Columbia, Harvard, Brown, the Institute, NYU, other places. Statistical research groups at Columbia, Princeton, Berkeley, and ballistics research groups to coordinate the mathematical problem solving for the military. So the military interfaced with the applied mathematics panel, which then doled out these problems to these different applied, these different mathematics groups, applied mathematics group, statistical research group, ballistics research group. A few mathematicians like von Neumann and Stanislav Stanislav Ulam worked on the atomic bomb project at Los Alamos. And some also served in operations research sections with the Army, Air Force, and other branches. So America's mathematicians were ultimately recognized as having contributed significantly to the war effort because of all of these um, activities. Um, Frank Jewett, who was a chemist and the president of the National Academy of Sciences, even went so far as to say that, and this is a quote, the chemists declare this a physicist's war, but with almost equal justice, one might say that it's a mathematician's war. So given their experiences or non-experiences in some sense during World War I, they're really getting recognized for what they're doing in World War II. Thanks. In particular, um, I was struck by um, a story you relate about Edwin Hewitt, a 1942 Harvard PhD under Marshall Stone. Can you tell our listeners part of that story 
as it relates to uh, contributions to the war efforts. So <laughs> he was recruited um, as a civilian mathematician by the Applied Mathematics Panel. He had absolutely no training in applied mathematics or, needless to say, in the just developing field of operations research. But nevertheless, he was sent to England to work on what they called the gunnery problem. So in short, this was the problem. How do we keep our planes from being shot down by the German Luftwaffe? Not at all an easy question, but that's what he was supposed to solve. He would also didn't know a thing about ballistics. So he began by studying everything he could get his hands on. And he came to realize that he needed tables giving him the time of flight of a bullet as a function of range and muzzle velocity. But such tables didn't exist in England. So he approached the gunnery experts at the British Ministry of Aircraft Production, got the data he needed and computed tables that allowed him to calculate the necessary deflection to hit a fighter attacking a bomber. And this allowed him to conclude, and here's the operations research side of it, that the British system of zone firing, that's a system whereby a gunner's field of fire was divided into zones as opposed to aiming at a particular point, that that was optimal. Okay, so that's that's a pretty big discovery. It, it's now telling the governor, it suggests that the gunners need to be doing a very particular thing in order to get these Luftwaffe planes out of the air before they got them. Okay, so but the, then the problem was Hewitt had to get this word out to the gunners who were up there flying in these planes. So to do that, he not only went around to air bases all over Europe, or sorry, all over England, um, where he personally instructed the gunners but he also enrolled in an RAF gunnery school so that he could understand things from the gunner's point of view. So he's actually up there flying in planes. In addition to writing a manual in plain English for the gunners to use, he also flew actual missions, one of which was over Cherbourg on D-Day. So this guy, <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. He ended up being awarded the uh, Army Air Force's Air Medal and he was the only mathematician so honored. So it really is an incredible story. And he had no training at all in this kind of stuff. Yeah, it was fascinating to get a chance to learn uh, about him and about that story. Uh, that is a, a fascinating story. Um, okay, so uh, so the end of the war in Europe, May 8th, uh, 1945, and in the Pacific, September 2nd, 1945, uh, it's going to... Um, require more transitions. Um, and um, many felt uh, at the time the need to establish an ongoing research agenda uh, associated with national security. And one effort in that regard was uh, the, the um, attempt to create a research board for national security. Uh, so that was created. Uh, maybe you can say a little bit about what happened with that. And also, uh, within the Navy, the Office of Naval Research was initiated, and a woman by the name of Minna Rees was tapped to head the mathematics section of that office, and Minna Rees's name appears a few other times in the latter part of the book, so maybe you could say uh, to the listeners a little bit about who she was. Okay. Um, so, so these questions are kind of getting at this question maybe, what if any support was there for research geared towards national offense in the immediately post-World War II period? So it's also a complicated question. Um, one of the problems, like I mentioned before, was that after World War I, the government just never could see its way clear to provide steady support for science. During World War I, the scientists were called in on the fly and, you know, they did their best, but then the war was over and that was that. So at least during World War II, because of foresight and the U.S.'s entry only in 1941, there was time to have a little bit more planning. But with the war's end in 1945, the, the question was, well, okay, should all that planning now just go to waste? Uh, should all those lessons learned just be forgotten? 
the scientists, and this is not just the mathematicians, the scientists in general were saying, no, no, we, we gotta, we gotta do something about this. Uh, and fortunately they had support from those others outside of science. So, uh, as early as 1944, when the war is still going on, plans were being made for this post-war, what they were going to call Research Board for National Security. And the idea was that it would be a permanent federal funded, funded via armed services budgets board that would have scientific, including mathematical representation, as well as representation from the Army and Navy. So all that was well and good, but it got hopelessly entangled in Washington politics and ultimately came to naught after almost two years of effort. So it came like within epsilon of being founded, but finally it was sort of on a technicality that Congress said it couldn't do this. So if Congress couldn't do it, the Navy, which had its own separate budget, funded by Congress, of course, but the Navy could do what it wanted to do with its own budget, and it decided to establish within the Navy the Office of Naval Research. So the ONR was committed primarily to fundamental research in the sciences. It's remarkable. They decided we need to support fundamental research because we never know when we might need it. So that made the ONR essentially the first federally funded agency with that mission. And as you said, its mathematical division was under Minna Reese. So she had been a 1931 PhD student at Chicago under Leonard Dixon, and she had been Warren Weaver's deputy at the Applied Mathematics panel during World War II. So not only was she a PhD mathematician, but she was also, you know, right at the center of things as far as um, the mobilization of science during World War II. So from her position as head of the mathematics division of the ONR, she crafted and implemented from scratch a peer-reviewed system for funding basic research in applied and pure mathematics at the ONR. So, and she was insistent that applied and pure, because again, you never know when pure mathematics might be applied. She had incredible foresight. So the National Science Foundation, this would only come into existence in 1950. And when it did come into existence, it was largely modeled on Reese's ideas and her implementation. So she is she's really important in the post-World War II um, era relative to science funding in general. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, so in conclusion, maybe um, you, you mentioned, um, so here we are in a approaching 1950, um, what evidence is there um, that you find for the United States emerging from this period uh, at the conclusion of the um, era uh, um, as emerging as equals among Europeans and Russians in research mathematics? Okay. Well, actually, from the point of view of the Americans, it was more than a matter of being equal to Europe. It was a matter of having assumed, as they put it, world leadership. So they, they were the leaders. They were on top. Um, and just as an aside, short-sighted though it may have been, Russia was less on their minds, uh, at least in the immediately post-war years, say to 1950. So their concept of leadership here has at least two components, leadership in research and organizational leadership. Both are hard, if not impossible, to quantify, but there's evidence that we can point to to suggest that American mathematics had become the world leader by 1950. So let me just try out this evidence on you. Um, so trivially, the Americans themselves make the assertion categorically. They say, we are now the world leader. So of course that doesn't make it so, but it suggests a collective mindset that reflects a certain confidence that they could and would do what was needed, both from a mathematical and an organizational point of view. Okay. Um, the American community was also producing a huge amount of new research at a time when Europe had been crippled by the war 
and Russia was increasingly retreating behind the Iron Curtain, of course, at the same time that it was crafting its Cold War agenda, which they would certainly come to find out about in spades later on, within a few years, right, in the 1950s. Um, so the American community was setting research agendas for the future. At the Princeton Bicentennial Conference on, they called it Problems in Mathematics, that happened in 1946, some 100 mathematicians were brought together from the U.S. and abroad to do what Hilbert had done at Paris at the International Congress of Mathematicians in 1900, namely try to direct future mathematical research by formulating key questions and highlighting key areas. The Americans also finally hosted their first International Congress of Mathematicians in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1950. The 1940 ICM that they were supposed to have hosted had been canceled due to the war. So this marked the assumption by the Americans of an explicitly international role. And then the Americans, and particularly Marshall Stone, were seminal in the refounding of the International Mathematical Union, also in 1950. So whatever other characteristics a or the world leader in mathematics might have, I think these pieces of evidence must certainly point in that direction at the very least. We also, I'd argue, couldn't make a list like this for any other country at the time. So I guess that's about the best evidence I can, I can get. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, I, I found the book uh, fascinating. It's an it's a it's a really well researched uh, document with uh, I think um, a, a very important period of, um, uh, of of development for American mathematics. So thank you very very much for taking the time to uh, talk with us today about that book about your book. Um, can you tell our listeners uh, what you're currently up to? Well, so this was a pretty big project and I just finished it. So I'm kind of regrouping and catching my breath at the moment and not totally sure what I'll go to next research wise. But I think a lot more could be said about this question you asked a minute ago about American mathematicians in World War II. So I might start digging even more deeply there to see what I might turn up. But no promises, but that might be that might be where I start poking around somewhere. Well, that'd be fascinating. I'll look forward to learning if uh, what you discover there and in, uh, inquiries. Karen, it was a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate it very much again on behalf of the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciated the opportunity. It was a lot of fun. 